Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the week ending Friday the 5th of May and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, we commemorate 25 years of ED with a chat with Lloyds Bank's Head of Sustainability and Responsible Business about the evolution of corporate finance over the past quarter century how to trade effectively post-Brexit, how to recover from the pandemic, how to deal with the cost of living and energy crisis. And then over the top of that, you overlay the navigation of an incredibly complex and fast-moving landscape for net zero. We have to have enormous empathy for businesses that are in the midst of all of that and help with the solutions and support that hopefully they can trust. And then we talk all things circular economy. First, the International Council on Mining and Metals give us their take on achieving a just transition to a circular economy for mining. The process of mining copper, the process of mining iron ore, and everything that has to do with what we need for a just transition, for an energy transition, for to, to tackle poverty, to deliver a nature-positive goal, all those processes have to become circular. And then we hear from Danish manufacturer Danfoss about what a circular economy looks like for manufacturing now and in the future. We can't do it alone, uh, using it as a platform to collaborate with many different types of organizations, uh, academics, thought leaders, peers in the industry, um, suppliers upstream, and importantly, customers downstream. So circularity is something that we need to address. The full um, closed loop life cycle of that requires a lot of partners. Plus, we'll be reflecting on the recent climate protests, some more greenwashing concerns, green jobs, cycling schemes, and of course, another big fat sustainability quiz. All of that and more covered in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello and welcome along to Sustainability Uncovered. Edie's content director, Luke Nichols, back once again in our office basement, which is slowly but surely uh, becoming an actual professional podcast studio. And I must say, I'm feeling much more complete and raring to go today than on our previous full episode. Not just because the sun is shining, we've got back-to-back bank holiday weekends here in the UK, um, but also because we've got a full team back here in the studio. But only just, I must say, because um, content editor Matt, uh, once again, has been gallivanting on, ho- on holiday. But such is your dedication to the cause. You've turned up here in the studio. So um, how's the staycation going? All good staycations have a middle where you go back into your place of work for a few hours just to kind of, you know, do a bit of work and then go back to your staycation. There's too much of a good thing otherwise. So right. thrilled to be here. Yeah, certainly. No, I, I, I'm, I'm fine to come in. The podcast is always fun to record. It's like half an hour of my day. It's not too bad. Yeah. Well, if this was a podcast, people would be able to see just the thrill and excitement on your face of being back, Matt, brimming. Um, very good. And, and sat across the table here from Matt is the second half of our editorial double act. is Sarah George. Sarah, how are things going? Have you recovered from last week's uh, special episode live from the London protests? Um, I mean, just about. I'm definitely unfit in that um, <laughs> I definitely had some sore legs after doing the march and 
maybe because it was freezing cold, um, very rainy, also some sore throats from um, yelling a lot <laughs> as well. So just about recovered from that, but I wouldn't have missed it for, for the world. And I'm sure we can talk a little bit more um, about the big one. Yeah, it was a, a great special episode. Check it out if you haven't already. It was the last episode prior to this one. And while we're talking climate protests and activism, uh, I think this is the perfect segue into our uh, next introduction because three has become four here on the Sustainability Uncovered podcast. Joining us for the first time is Edie's conference producer and climate activist Jade Burnett. It's a round of applause to welcome Jade onto the show. Welcome to the to the podcast. It's like having a fan along. You've been a long time listener. How does it feel to be behind the mic and uh, is this everything you imagined? Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for welcoming down to your glamorous podcast studio. Massive fan. Can't believe I'm here. Can't believe I'm sitting this close to the Matt Mace. Mm-hmm. Who you sit next yeah. to every Monday. Yeah, <laughs> usually avoid eye contact. <laughs> what's your what's your favourite episode ever? <gasps> this no, one. <laughs> This one, of course. Yeah, good answer. So, um, yeah, I mean, Sarah obviously brings an enormous amount of uh, industry experience and intelligence to this podcast, having reported front lines of climate action, writing thousands of sustainability stories across the year. Matt tries his best. Yeah, yeah. He does. <laughs> Thank um, you. When you do bother to show, I mean, you're good for a, a dog anecdote, aren't you? A Netflix Netflix anecdote. That's true. Um, but Jade, what? Back pain too. <laughs> yeah, back pain. Back's actually doing okay. Is it? Same. Oh, first, okay. first run in six weeks today. Good. Yeah, we've had several people emailing in about your back. So that <laughs> well, any 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 kind of self help remedy tips, I'm all I'm all ears. So. Great, um, Jade. What are you uh, hoping to bring and, and get out of the podcast? So, out of character for me, but I'm actually going to bring the tone up a little bit with my answer. So I've been with Edie for just over a year now, and I see my role as producer as an extension of my personal activism. Yeah, I am a proper tree hugger by definition. And a few years ago, I came to the understanding that the climate emergency has moved far beyond choices that any of us can make in isolation. And so connecting with businesses all across the UK and beyond with the solutions that they need to take that bold and transformative action is my personal mission. Um, And I see the podcast as another form to achieve this, besides our amazing events, of course, which I will now be shamelessly vlogging on here. Hmm. Yeah, really cool, I think, to be able to bring the the conferences and events side of things together in this discussion with editorial should make some interesting chats going forward. Um, hopefully make our quizzes a bit more competitive as well. Um, yeah, I was getting a bit, bit tired of just winning all the time, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, stay tuned for the Circular Economy quiz later on in the show. For now, though, I think this is the time of year when people like Matt are off taking their holidays, extending their bank holidays. I imagine a lot of listeners might have fallen a bit out of touch and need to be kept up to speed with what's happening in the industry. Basically, this is the segment where I catch up on what the team's been covering because I wanted you to all give me a quick lowdown on some of the top stories from the past few weeks. So... One standout story each. Matt, let's start with you. What's your standout susty story from the last few weeks? Uh, I think mine is uh, one I covered last week. There was a huge global survey of basically the marketing profession. I think it was the World Federation of Advertisers, and they account for 90, 90% of that profession by market spend. Surveyed their kind of uh, audience um, with a focus on sustainability as the core thing. So more than 900 uh, respondents, so 
very, very big survey. It basically found that there's this kind of um, knowledge gap within the marketing profession when it comes to sustainability. And it's a knowledge gap that's growing. Um, I think last year's survey, they found that around 20% of responders didn't think they had the kind of capacity or knowledge or skills to articulate sustainability on their kind of business's behalf in terms of advertising, communications. That's now risen to 35%, so one in three, mm. uh, as the kind of climate crisis increase, so to the, the way that businesses respond and the way that it's kind of marketed becomes much more uh, complex as a result and greenwashing is a huge concern and so it's understandable that that capacity gap is is growing and that's despite more marketing professionals having kind of KPIs tied to sustainability which is a common trend now across all areas of the business. Um, I just think it's uh, quite interesting we kind of just it's very easy to tell brands just to stop greenwashing mm-hmm. um, but it's not that easy when the professionals task with the comms aspect of it or, or certainly advertising and engaging with um, clients or consumers don't feel that they have the skills uh, to do so and then on the flip side if they then kind of revert back into themselves and don't start talking about it the other then the other side of this green wash debate is the green hush where they go quiet because they don't want to articulate um, stuff they're not sure about so it's kind of a, a, a double-edged sword for, well, for marketing professionals right now in terms of how they approach they've got to get it right otherwise they're going to be accused of something um so i thought that was quite an interesting uh one just to kind of get a state of play of that profession but they um i think promisingly a lot more within that industry are proud of the companies they work for and do feel that there's a good sustainability story to tell so their companies are doing the right thing they just don't know how to Mm. say it yet interesting okay jade i asked you beforehand what you what you were going to be talking about here you just gave me the one word cycling so um cycling story that you picked up over the last few weeks (laughs) Yeah, so I'm going to be highlighting one of Sarah's success stories this week. Um, I was excited to see the announcement of the UK's first cycling proficiency scheme for e-bikes in London. Um, And as we know, e-bikes are an important part of accelerating the decarbonisation of road transport. But a major barrier to the adoption of these is understandably the low confidence around urban roads. And this is something I very much relate to as an East Londoner myself. I had a cycling lesson this weekend to bring up my confidence. How'd it go? <laughs> oh, like, just Paul looked at Matt to uh, give you some space to banter me about this. The cycle tutor wore a high vis jacket alongside me for a good two hours, which was very embarrassing. But um, I'm all right. And I had to signal and I had to uh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Always good things to know how to do on a yeah. bike in fairness. Um, so yeah, it's really cool to see those free lessons uh, to help cyclists. Oh, interesting. Their way free. Around the it reminds me of the um, trip to Copenhagen, mm-hmm. where um, yeah, fifty percent of all trips to work and school now in Copenhagen are made on bike, which I think is massively due to training as children mm. and free classes and the mm. cycle schemes they've got going there. And just the space out there, like there's so many, so many cycling lanes. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Com- the infrastructure is completely different. Interesting. Great. Um, Sarah? Yeah, I feel like it's hard to segue into this because Matt's gone for like a, one of our best read stories. Jade has gone for a touching personal anecdote. Oh, I've just gone for the thing that I've spent the most time on today, um, which is that the World Economic Forum has a major new report out about the future of work, um, largely based off of data from LinkedIn. And there's a lot there about green skills and green jobs. Um, essentially some key stats I picked out were that the global demand for green skills is now 40% higher than in 2015 Um, but I'd rather look at that as an opportunity to upskill people and create jobs rather than Mm -hmm. as something negative I want to keep the 
keep the vibes um, positive. Um, and a positive finding from that as well was um, the World Economic Forum is predicting that annual corporate investments in the green transition should be 52% higher in 2027 than they are this year. So as much as you might hear about short-termism, um, they're not seeing that as the direction of travel. We're expecting a significant uptick. Mm. Well, I think you're seeing that in the US, I never thought we'd say it, but given the, the Inflation Reduction Act over in the US, mm-hmm. I think that's obviously unlocking a huge amount of investment into clean tech. I saw another article recently, I think 100,000 jobs, green jobs have been created in less than six months since that act was brought in. So um, it goes yeah. to show with the right policy and financial enablers, you kind of, the jobs will flow. Mm. It must be nice, mustn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it would. But I would say that the WEF report also found that the biggest net job gains are actually going to be in the global south which is always mm, nice to hear because we always hear about how the EU and the US stand to um, to benefit, but that was a good a good thing to see as well. Yeah, yeah. That's the first time I've actually ever heard it called the WEF. I just Same. always call it WEF. We really need some more coffee. WEF, WEF, WEF. I think we all do. <laughs> I think we all do. Um, okay, so actually, Sarah, I think this discussion about green jobs and growth segues nicely uh, into the first interview of the show. So tell us what you got lined up. Yeah, so for the first part of this episode, we're going to be celebrating Edie's 25th birthday. That's right. We love to say that we're older than Google, and we actually are. Um, And I thought that a great way to do that would be to speak to someone who's been working in sustainable finance for more than 20 years from the creation of his organisation's first sustainability um, strategy to ongoing evolution in that space. We've been lucky in recent weeks to look back at more than a decade, well, more than two and a half decades of progress um, in things like politics and consumer goods. So it's only right that we do it for, for finance as well. Mm. Okay, so you had a chat with uh, Gary Lapthorne, who is the Head of Sustainability and Responsible Business at Lloyds Bank. So here's that chat uh, between Sarah and uh, Lloyds Bank's Gary Lapthorne in full. Yes, so as we will have just said in the studio, this next part of the podcast, um, we are coming to our partners at Lloyds Bank, um, specifically to Gary Lapthorne. Gary, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, well, absolute pleasure. It's um, it's a beautiful day here in London. So yeah, really glad to be with you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Any time. And that's a sentence that we haven't been able to say much over the past month or so. So um <laughs> Glad that things are looking up a bit weather-wise. Um, and as we'll have also mentioned in the studio, it's Edie's 25th birthday. And to mark the occasion, we are really looking to speak to as many people as possible who have been working in sustainable business um, for a significant amount of time and seeing the evolution of sustainable business. And Gary, I understand that you fall firmly um, into that category, that you've been with with the bank for multiple decades and were there when it <laughs> shaped and launched its first sustainability strategy so perhaps we could start some reflections on on that yeah sure well firstly happy birthday to Edie clearly but um thank you for the opportunity to yeah just to think a little bit about that with you um so I head up the sustainability and responsible business team in the what we call the business and commercial banking division of Lloyd's but essentially that means we look after clients from startup up to broadly 100 million of turnover. Um, so it's the other part of the business from David Willock, who you had on one of these podcasts uh, uh, a few weeks ago. I have a small central team of about 15 people. We work with leaders and teams all around the, the group and the divisions. 
and um, and with, of course, our group sustainable business team. So it's very much a, a kind of internal cohort of colleagues that all collaborate on um, an agenda which we're all incredibly passionate about. And as you say, yes, uh, sadly, nearly 37 years with Lloyd. So now I feel really old. Um, I had the privilege of uh, leading the development of our sustainability strategy for the B2B divisions um, back as far ago as 2017. And I know that doesn't sound at first sight, you know, really long ago, but it's amazing how much the whole ecosystem has changed in that time period. Um, and your question was, what was it like? Well, um, well, in short, I, I guess exhilarating, exciting, but incredibly intimidating as well. I think um, we'd recognise that we were in a much earlier phase of acceleration at that point. It was a topic that I had you know, a personal passion in. But I'd only really just started the process of personally upskilling through some courses through the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, for example. Um, and genuinely, I came away from one of those courses with my action plan being to run a leadership event within Lloyds Bank to actually start us thinking about how we needed to dial up our support for clients and colleagues on, on this agenda. And if I'm honest with you, it was a really easy conversation with our then commercial banking CEO, with our group director of responsible business, with the chair of our board responsible business committee. Um, they instantly were supportive of us doing um, some thinking and investment into this agenda. And I guess that's a that's a, a level of support that you have to always be grateful for when you can look back and feel like organizationally we've made some good progress in supporting our clients. Um, it was also, I think, really easy to collaborate with other leaders from around the business who either had their own personal passions or had a resonance with you know, the ethical and commercial considerations of, of the opportunity. And maybe we'll talk a bit more about it later, but we we kind of set out on a path of trying to build quite a holistic strategy, um, but mindful about needing to build our own credibility um, before, you know, essentially going too big in terms of the ways that we were able to support our clients. So I guess in summary, it felt from the outset really purposeful, very aligned with the DNA of the organisation. Most importantly, you know, key to supporting our clients and to our, our kind of mission of helping Britain prosper. So that those would be some early reflections on, you know, the last seven years. Got it. And you say that 2017 doesn't sound that long ago, but in terms of sustainability, it very much is. Since then, we've had the UK legislating for net zero um, changes in the UN agreement, new new international treaty on plastics pollution and so much more that I just don't have time um, to mention. And you you say that in 2017 there was a need to accelerate action, but it seems that now we have even more pressure to accelerate action. So how can a bank respond to that, as you say, credibly, um, beyond simply the headline grabbing, oh, we've got a new green mortgage or we've got a new green revolving credit facility option? Yeah, um, gosh, I, I do so wish I'd had the crystal ball um, back in 2017 about just how fast we'd need to go, because um, keeping pace has been naturally one of the challenges for all of us. I guess the first thing to say, Sarah, is that um, it isn't just responding to that growing demand. I think the climate emergency is almost uniquely everyone's challenge, isn't it? And um, as a bank, we definitely have a role to play. Uh, it's about walking the talk and improving our own operations and our emissions and our other impacts, as well as um, 
working with our supply chain, etc. But as I alluded to earlier, we recognize that it's really key to our stated purpose as an organization. It's embedded in our strategy in Lloyds Bank. It's embedded in our values. It plays a major role in the talent that we want to attract and nurture and retain in the group, as it will for many organizations listening. Um, for us, though, the absolutely massive opportunity, um, arguably responsibility, is, is our finance emissions. Our, our bank finance emissions are about two thirds of our total in Lloyds Bank. Um, a further 30% come from our Scottish Widows finance emissions. So you can instantly see that leaves only a fraction for the emissions that come from our own operations and, and our supply chain. So organizationally, we set about setting some really stretching targets for ourselves to guide our progress, if you like. And you know, as far back as 2018, we we set a goal to work with clients, markets, government, et cetera, to help halve the finance emissions um, by 2030. We've also joined organizations like the Net Zero Banking Alliance, um, meaning that we progressively published targets for our most impactful sectors, which we updated publicly on last October and will continue to do so through our regular external disclosures all of which lead to how important it is for us to support our clients to transition. And I think that's where I come back to the importance of a, a holistic strategy. So to your point, it's not just about green finance products. Actually, it's important to have uh, training and engagement of your colleagues because otherwise they're going to feel intimidated by the scale and breadth and depth of the agenda that we all face into here. So they need to feel confident to engage with their clients on, on the topic. I think it is important to widen the green finance products available, but in the sector of the business that I look after, it's also important to have the right tools. The insight that we have show that, you know, businesses are committed to doing the right thing, but they don't know who to trust or where to start. And there's multiple headwinds that they're facing into, of course, as we'd all recognise, whether that's, you know, how to trade effectively post-Brexit, how to recover from the pandemic, how to deal with the cost of living and energy crisis. And then over the top of that, you overlay the um, navigation of an incredibly complex and fast-moving landscape for net zero, often accompanied by pressures down through their supply chains to change. And, you know, that adds up to something that I think we have to have enormous empathy for businesses that are in um, the midst of all of that and help with the solutions and support that hopefully they can trust. And um, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, some of those later, but um, I guess that together really amplifies the importance of a systemic or holistic approach rather than just you know green finance products. Yeah we can certainly come back to that piece about balancing short-term challenges with long-term sustainability um, and something you've mentioned multiple times is supporting people and having credibility um, and a lot of that is knowing what to do but it's very hard to know what to do when everything is in jargon. Um, and we've talked a lot about climate finance, but more broadly, we see so much ESG jargon um, in finance. People saying that it's an alphabet soup. Different companies use different terms and different frameworks. You mentioned that a lot of businesses want to do the right thing. They might have a sustainability team who reports into the finance team and work together in that way. But how can a bank and that team inside a business work together to align expectations on ESG because I feel like for that support and that credibility you certainly have to be on the same page to to start with. 
You you absolutely do. And um, we think about this a lot, Sarah. I, I think the, the starting point for me is just to always engage and talk to each other. Um, you, you're right. It's, it's such a fast moving topic. Even if you work in this space every day, you, you still feel like you're dabbling at times. And that is just due to the pace, I think, of the agenda. So that empathy for businesses that are mentioned earlier, when they don't have access in the main in the SME segments to um, in-house or um, even often external sustainability uh, teams of, of experts. So I think it's important to firstly recognise that they don't need to become expert. We can't all be, and uh, I certainly count myself amongst amongst that. But I think for a for a business, it's often about encouraging them to think about uh, think think ethically, think commercially about their most obvious opportunities. For example, energies, buildings, and transport, of course, are always often at the the, the heart of of the the key things that businesses can address. And it's important to just kind of ask each other what is critical to their strategy? What are their key risks, be they, you know, physical, reputational, regulatory? And what are the best opportunities they might have to either reduce costs or open up uh, open up new revenue pools that are that, that are potentially profitable for them? And important to all of that, I think, is just talking about and having access to some clear sources of insights. And, and data is often uh, acknowledged to be a massive challenge, which it is, of course. But uh, instead of being derailed by the challenges of data, I think it's important to think about impact and opportunity. We can all agitate for, you know, accelerated tax taxonomies that are more consistent and help us talk with a uniform and comparable language. But in the meantime, investments that reduce energy consumption or reduce biodiversity impacts of almost certain to be no regrets, aren't they? So I think those are the things that I would think about in terms of how we work together to align expectations. And maybe just to conclude with an example of the kind of tools that can help with something like that. Um, in Lloyds Bank, we have um, a free tool which we make available to our, to our clients called the Green Buildings Tool. And you know the vast majority of us need to operate from somewhere and um, what this tool does is whether it's an individual building or a portfolio of buildings, it uses um, publicly available data such as EPC ratings, um, some sophisticated algorithms in the background. But what it actually does for a business is to say, you know, based on what we can see, the opportunities for you to improve that building are LED lighting, building energy management systems, whatever the, the opportunity is, but it will make the ready-made business case for them. So if you make this investment, it's likely to cost you X. The payoff for that is likely to be, you know, Y in terms of ongoing running costs, Z in terms of emissions reductions. And if you do all of those things, then the predicted EPC rating at the end is likely to be improved. So, so it's tools like that that just help people think through in a very simple way what the first steps might be um, along the journey. Great well I'm glad to hear that things like that exist and I'm glad to hear that clients are working more closely um, with their bank on this um, but I did want to touch on the fact that we talked about engaging with companies that have engaged before um, but we recently partnered with um, with Lois on our business leadership 
survey taken by 225 professionals and we actually found that not as many businesses as you might think are turning to their bank um, for this expertise as you might think they might be going to a consultancy instead um, only 17% of people who responded to that said they're seeking finance for their green projects from private investors only 15% said they're looking at that um, for banks. So I wanted to get your view, Gary, on why you think some businesses are missing that opportunity, because as we've we've m- mentioned, the opportunity is is there. Yeah, I agree completely. And, and there's some really interesting stats in what you've just said, Sarah. I think um, there's so much research around, isn't there, in terms of how um, SMEs and other businesses are thinking about this, this topic. And for example, our research has shown that two thirds of businesses at least plan to reach net zero by 2050. It it also shows they're motivated by protecting the environment for future generations. They're motivated by reducing waste, employee well-being and engagement, and of course, cost savings. So so I think what that does in the context of, of your stats is says that the will and the drivers are both there for for SMEs. So um, the, the challenge is how do we encourage more of them to to speak to banks and financiers about the opportunity? And um, I guess, again, it is also about recognising the challenges that they're facing into. So with the will being there, we also know that 71% of businesses are very concerned about the rising costs of energy. Um, 43% of businesses view insufficient budget as a key challenge to their journey to net zero. And 32% would look at low return on investment as one of their key challenges. So there's almost a hierarchy of competing challenges. And um, perhaps in the context of being a little bit concerned of demonstrating vulnerability in this space, maybe there are some barriers to just having that opening up, trusting engagement that we mentioned um, right at the beginning. So I guess it almost brings us full circle to where we started, Sarah. It's it's about encouraging that engagement to start, um, having empathy for the trade-offs, encouraging each other to be vulnerable, vulnerable about not having all of the answers and not being experts, um, starting the conversation with the individuality of that particular business and working out what are the you know the best first and next steps together using the kind of materiality of impact as a guide for that and then i think on us there is such an important um, role for us to make sure that clients are aware of our commitment to green finance how that connects to our strategy and our purpose and to try through our green finance propositions to make it as cost effective as possible to invest. And then I think, you know, the kind of closing point for me would just be that's about starting the engagement. You know, this is a long term journey which has a lot of urgency, as we'd all as we'd all acknowledge. But it's so important to keep the conversation going because technologies mature, opportunities change, markets evolve. And so, you know, making sure that we collectively keep talking to each other, client and bank, is is key to um, making sure that we help as many of those clients to transition as possible, whilst also through doing that, making sure we deliver on the commitments that we've made. 
Well, Gary, I know you said that was your closing point, and I know you're a very busy man, so I'll let you get going um, very shortly. But I love that you said that we've come full circle because we will be turning to the circular economy for the next part of our podcast. So do stay tuned. Um, But for now, I'm going to say a big thank you once again to Gary for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time. Great to talk to you, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you very much to Gary Lapthorne and Lloyds Bank, our podcast partner. Right now, we've got two more interviews still to be delivered up here, but uh, we've covered a lot of ground in the last half an hour, so it's time for a quick break. But don't go anywhere, because when we return in just 30 seconds' time, we'll be delivering up two of those fascinating chats about making the circular economy a reality, and we'll be testing our own circular economy knowledge with a special quiz. So, see you in a sec. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, and you've just heard our conversation with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this new podcast series, as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank work with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. I'm joined here still in the studio by the ED trio that is Jade, Matt and Sarah, or JMS as the collective. And for part two of this episode, we're taking a circular economy theme now. So, um, Sarah, explain. Well, essentially, at the end of May, we will be hosting a Circular Economy Focus Week with some great content on site, um, including probably some susty talks, um, some features um, and some online events, as well as some some face-to-face events as well. Um, And in the lead up to this, the second part of our podcast today is going to be all about the circular economy. We know that the current global economy is linear, i.e. things are taken, made and disposed, um, often with a very short lifespan. And this has a massive impact negatively on biodiversity um, and on the climate. Um, So we've been running Focus Week on Circular Economy for a couple of years now, and it's always um, a popular one. So I hope the next two interviews and the quiz will serve as a nice precursor to that Focus Week, which I should say begins on May 22nd. Yes, um, great. So you have a conversation here with Christian Spano, who is the Director of Innovation at ICMM. Uh, Really interesting to hear about what a just transition looks like for this sector. So here's Sarah's chat with Christian from the International Council on Mining and Metals in full. Yes, so as we've just mentioned in the studio there, for the next part of this podcast, we are coming on to our chats about the circular economy ahead of our circular economy focus week later this month. Um, And I'm delighted to have on the phone with me today, Christian Spano, the Director of Innovation at ICMM. So Christian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Sarah, for the invitation. This is exciting. No, I'm really excited to have um, you guys on because um, I'd, I think we were we were chatting offline about how when you hear about the circular economy, you might not expect to hear from the extractive industries um, for whom this is a massive, massive question. Um, but before we dig into that question, Christian, I think it'd be great to let listeners who might not be aware of the ICMM um have a brief introduction and it'd be great to hear a little bit about your role there as well please christian of course look zara icmm is a very very different industrial organization we focus solely on sustainability 
uh, issues. We work with 26 of the largest mining companies in the world. Uh, our governance is led by CEOs. Um, we represent the 30% of the market cap value. There are 650 sites uh, based globally. Um, and as, as I mentioned, our work focused on uh, areas like climate change, circularity, human rights, uh, nature, um, water, everything that has to do with sustainability only. We are not the traditional industrial organization that, that look after commercial interests of companies. Uh, we always say that our two North Stars are the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the targets in the Paris Agreement. Um, so we basically work with these 26 mining companies to deliver uh, to these two North Stars and, and, and what we want to do is accelerate action, reach larger scale uh, and use the power of, of the mining industry uh, to drive to drive a sustainability agenda that is meaningful for everybody. Got it. And I mean, on many of those SDGs and topics that you've mentioned, people might think that mining in the past has been the bad guy, including the SDG of choice for this episode, number 12, which is all about um, producing, cons um, consuming, reusing um, materials. So um, what role does the ICMMC for mining as a historically extractive industry in this transition to a circular economy in this achievement of SDG number 12? It's a, it, you know what, Sarah, you're raising the most important question in this in this space. You know, when we when we step back and we think about what has driven the current definition of the circular economy, there is uh, the influence of many industries, uh, but in particular two industries uh, or two sectors. One is plastics. Uh, and the other one is food and land use for very good reasons, you know. And and mostly uh, plastics has been around substituting plastics. So uh, if we want to talk circular economy language, reduce, uh, replace, you know, and around waste because in many ways plastics at the end um, has a a waste problem that has to be solved, and so there is a lot of attention on reducing waste. And with food and land use, there is a lot of um, uh, focus on regeneration, again, reducing waste. And so our current thinking, our being those that are close to the circular economy and those that read about the circular economy, um, will always think about waste, will think about redu reduction um, and regeneration. And your question, what, what is the role of, a, of an industry like the mining industry in the circular economy? If you think about our role in, in uh, starting from the obvious, what we produce is a very durable material, uh, minerals and metals. That's what we get out when we uh, put in place our processes. And when one really look at defining success in the circular economy, what we need is to create uh, stocks of these very durable materials. We need to put these very durable materials in cars in houses and everything we use to be able to recover them forever. So there are two things that we need to have in place. The conditions to recover these materials. So all the operating systems, we need to trace them. We need to have the policies in place. We need to uh, work with those that are using the materials, recovering them, uh, tracing them. But at the end, if we don't have a durable material, things become very difficult. Uh, because at the end, in the other extreme, we have disposable materials materials that have been designed to become waste. 
And so that is the product uh, lens that one can uh, put to the mining industry. And, and one that is not applied enough. If we think about the value that is lost in the economy in minerals and metals, one estimation that one of our partners did in, in a piece of work that we ran last year is that $140 billion of materials are lost uh, in minerals and metals in the economy every year. $140 billion. And the other stat that I like to use is one from Circular Economy, which says that we have locked $150 trillion of value. I'll repeat that because it's with a big T, $150 trillion of value in materials, in products, infrastructure, and other stuff that we use that is very hard to, re to recover. We didn't design it for recovery. So the role of the mining industry is in delivering these very durable materials. But not only that, not only that. If we think about those durable materials and where they are coming from, we cannot allow in any shape or form for the processes of extracting those materials to not be circular. The process of mining copper, the process of mining iron ore, and everything that has to do with what we need for our just transition, for our energy transition, for to, to tackle poverty, to deliver a nature positive goal, all those processes have to become circular. And why they have to become circular? Because land is scarce, the less the less uh, uh, area of land that we use, the better. Because water is scarce, if we can recirculate water in the process of extraction, it should be done. Because energy is becoming very scarce and and uh, expensive, and so we do we should do the same with energy. And the good news, I think, is that when you look at uh, what our members in many instances, what what mining com companies are doing is, they talk about precision mining. They talk about um, many strategies that will align already with a lens of process circularity, reducing the footprint of the operation, circulating water, reducing the use of energy, using only renewable energy, and everything that has to do with a circular process. Now, there is a lot to do. There is a lot to do. I don't want any listener to think that uh, we have done the job by no means, but I think uh, we stay in hope that this industry delivers a material that is one of the most durable. I mean, all commodities uh, are the most durable materials we can find and they can be recovered forever if we have the conditions in place. But at the same time, when we think about the evolution of mining, it's becoming more precise, it's becoming um, uh, more conscious, let's say, of the use of water, energy, and so on. Now, I, I, I talk mostly representing our members who are usually the leaders in this space. There is a lot to do when we think about the industry, but that's why ICMM exists, because we want to accelerate these processes, because we want to make them the norm. Um, but yeah, the role of the mining industry is basically, you can summarize it in two, in two areas in the circular economy, delivering products that can last forever through processes that should be circular and deliver to a circular process that is good for the environment, good for people, uh, and at the end, good for the circular economy. And you talked about some really interesting process innovations there on traditional mines, but we know that for a circular economy, um, companies in all sectors are going to have to look at changing their products and therefore their supply chains and their innovation. So are you seeing any companies that are maybe usually looking at traditional mining, looking at that recovery piece to tap into some of the trillions of dollars worth of materials that, that you mentioned. I guess my question is, 
what innovation is going on in terms of new supply chains and new new business models for your members? Look, this is a very exciting space that is, you know, wasn't there maybe five years ago. If you would have raised this question, Sarah, with me five years ago, I would be struggling. But right now I can tell you a number of them. And let, let me start with some that are closer to the traditional miner model, but it's exciting how it's evolving. When we think about uh, how we're looking at tailings, and tailings is basically the waste that is the, uh, the result of uh, the process of mining. Um, and you can look uh, uh, at, at the evolution of that thinking in a piece of work that we did, ICMM, with our members. Uh, we reflected uh, existing technologies and their potential, uh, coming technologies and their potential for reduction, and then breakthrough technologies. We mapped 94 technologies that could be reducing 90% of waste in the process of mining. With existing technologies, you could reduce 15% already. And with the, let's say, evolving technologies that are being tested, not necessarily breakthrough, but you know, with a little bit more of, of uh, uptake and development, you could get to 35%. This is at the heart of what, what a miner does. So it's an innovation within mining, but dealing with a, let's call it waste stream that is significant and that um, to really deliver to it, you need to look at all elements of mining, not only just something at the at the end of the process. You really need to start at looking at how you identify a mine, how you do design the process of extraction, at, you know, the sorting of the ores, the processing of the ores, everything really. So that is that is one innovation, let's say, that will be familiar for miners. Other aspects that you know will be more on the downstream side. You see, you know, some of our members like Glencore entering the space of recycling in a very exciting way. Not only traditional scrap recycling, but also e-waste recycling. You see, for example, Rio Tinto investing in recycling capacity. That's at the end of the process, no? Um, you see, for example, uh, describing a, a model that talks about resource solutions provider. And this is an exciting model that looks at how you would support your clients in making their transition to a resource zero carbon uh, space. So the miner trying to provide not only the mineral that is critical for a zero carbon economy, a circular economy, but all the solutions and services that your client needs for them also to do that. And so you transition together with your portfolio of clients. So this is, these are just some of the aspects that, that I can share with you. On the more traditional side, when you think about um, carbon as a waste stream, you have uh, members like Antofagasta, which are you know radically uh, up, uh, creating the um, the uptake of renewable energy in Chile, really, and, and turning operations to 100% of renewable energy consumption. So there's a lot going on now. There's a lot of focus. But again, going back to where we stand and if we step back on the actual potential, we're just starting. We are just starting. We need to really work together with the mining industry, with all the partners around to create the conditions to really drive a, a circular economy on the process side and on the product side in something that becomes the norm. And it's not just some interesting case studies. Well, you mentioned massive change in the last five years. Clearly, I'm going to have to call you in another five years, Christian, to get an update on some of the stuff we've just talked about. Um, I want to touch on essentially as well the impact of some of these innovations on the shape of supply chains um, and on the people that work in those supply chains. So oftentimes we hear the argument, oh, if we have more recovery, there's less raw materials. What does that mean for people who work in the raw materials um, at the moment? 
is there an opportunity for new social and economic opportunities as we transform our economies as well? So I wanted to get your view on how the transition to a more circular metals and minerals industry could also tie in with that just transition piece. And as you've mentioned before, the rest of, of the SDGs. Brilliant question, Sarah. And there are a couple of there are a couple of elements there or, or layers in your question that I would like to peel as a uh, you know as I go through the answers. The first one is uh, uh, you know the, you're reflecting the lens that many have, which is that obviously you know in inverted uh, quotes uh, obviously if you increase if you increase secondary supply of materials, including minerals and metals. It becomes uh, uh, it it reduces the need for primary um, materials. It's not that obvious, actually. It's not that obvious. Um, that's the first point. Uh, in a growing economy, uh, what you want is to increase efficiencies as much as you can. Increase efficiencies through innovation, through existing applications. You know, you need to you need to really treat resources as what they are, very scarce. But it's not true that at least in the next 10 to 20 years, because you increase, even if you increase radically secondary uh, sourcing of materials, you will radically reduce primary supply. Actually, you will need both. You will need both primary supply and secondary supply to create a very stable system that doesn't rely only on one type of supply. So you want to scale up both. The second point is that on the primary side, one needs to really understand not only conceptually, but for policy, for finance, for design of products, for design of infrastructure. One really needs to um, understand the different implications of talking about supply of durable materials and supply of consumables. If you're supplying durable materials, I mean, those can be recovered forever. And so the focus should be to create the conditions in the markets getting those durable materials so that we have the policy, the financing, the business models, the incentives, the knowledge, all what we need to never allow uh, these materials to ever be close to a waste stream. You, know, you have a stock of copper in an electric vehicle, in their engines, you have a stock of aluminum, uh, in solar panels, you have steel in wind farms. You need to design a system that incentivizes all those metals, all those minerals, to be tracked, to be valued, and never become waste. Before, way before it becomes waste, we know when to recover them, not only through recycling, but through reuse, through refurbishing. And if we have the right business models in place, we can go further in managing that stock. Now, we, we, we usually, and this is the third and last point, we usually get into a level of anxiety when somebody talks uh, the points or brings the points that I'm bringing you know, and said, we can keep going in the space of supply and primary material. People get angry and say, Christian, I mean, what are you talking about? We're stressing, we're stressing uh, uh, the land, we're stressing nature where these materials are coming from. As I said, let's let's think about processes that can be circular. If together we can work with governments, solution providers, technology providers, the mining industry, so that we keep evolving the process of mining into something that provides a positive outcome, 
a positive contribution to land, a positive contribution to nature, a positive contribution to society. We need to work on that space. If we manage to do that, every ton of copper, every ton of iron ore will deliver a positive outcome. So here we really need to make the extra effort not to just assume that you know the worst model of mining is the common uh, model, but that we really can work together to bring the best model of mining, one that is fully circular and while delivering this durable material drives progress. And this links to your last point in terms of the uh, just transition. If we have a process that is driving development and we have a process that is driving a net positive contribution to nature and is fully circular, is circulating water, is circulating, you know, all the elements, all the materials that can be circulated, is using renewable energy and is, and is delivering a product that can be recovered forever in markets, you have a win-win situation. The demand for this durable material in Germany, China, the US, drives progress in Zambia, Chile, Peru, Botswana, and so on. If we divorce these two, and we keep the thinking that we need to close the entry for um, primary materials, because we're assuming that mining will remain bad forever, then we're dividing the world again. We're closing the entry for development to those resource-rich countries that usually are developing countries. That is not going to work in practice. We're going to have political friction, we're going to have social unrest, and it's simply not fair. So I think here is a call to action to really rethink how we link the circular economy in products, usually in the wealthiest, largest markets, and how that demand for that durable material can drive a new model of extraction that is that, that, that really drives a positive outcome uh, for society and nature, a new process of mining, that we don't have to relate with the mining 200 years ago, but one that we can aspire and work together in the next 10, 20, 30 years. If we manage to lock those two, we have a just transition. We have the largest markets getting the materials they need for the energy transition, reducing emissions, creating you know, advanced jobs in all the different solution areas for the circular economy and the energy transition. And we have resource-rich economies usually developing, they get this increase in demand, but also all the technologies of circularity at site level. We don't only get the basic jobs that we get today, but we get a, a different layers of jobs that are linked to all the solutions we need at site level to drive a circular process of mining. And so in that way, you have a growth growth, growth, growth story. You have a, a, a level of job creation that is not only basic jobs in developing countries and advanced jobs in developed economies, you have, a, you, know, you have a different layers of jobs in both sides, and you have a, an alignment of incentives. Now, at some point in the future, for sure, at some point in the future, for sure, uh, secondary is going to go to a point of sophistication that will really reflect the scarcity of natural stocks in, in some of the resource-rich countries. But I think that there's a long way to go until we get to that point. And, and we, should, we should definitely uh, design models, business models, operating models, that allows this win-win situation where the demand for durable materials in rich countries drives development in resource-rich countries. Great. And Christian, I've noted you've said the word layers to peel and to explore multiple times there. And it's such a big, interesting topic. So I think I should probably go away and think about those layers in a bit more um, detail because that is such a big global question. So thank you for answering in such depth. And thank you so much for your time on the podcast today. Thank you.
Fascinating chat. Thank you very much to Christian and the ICMM there. Right, now let's keep the circular economy wheel spinning because we've got our third and final interview of the show lined up and ready to play now. Matt, um, tell me where you took us next. Yeah, so uh, for this interview, we're talking to Danfoss, uh, the Danish manufacturer, um, kind of like of engineering equipment, uh, was kind of what they're most famous for. Um, and they um, they kind of offered a chat with their uh, sustainability lead, um, Francis Liu, uh, and we had to do it remotely over Teams because different countries, obviously, so I couldn't uh, meet her face-to-face, unfortunately. Uh, but we did get a chance to kind of grab some time and talk about um, their circular economy initiatives. They've got a relatively new strategy out, a new white paper out, looking into um, circularity and how engineering equipment can capture uh, waste heat and start to use that much more efficiently. And what I really enjoyed about this interview was the way that it views circular economy and decarbonisation uh, in kind of harmony together. It can be two separate things on corporate agendas a lot of time, but um, Danfoss have really worked to combine the two as part of their strategy. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so um, here's Matt's chat with Danfoss's Head of Sustainability, Francis Liu, in full. So, yes, joining me today to discuss all things circular economy for what is an otherwise action-packed uh, episode of this podcast is Francis Liu, who is the Vice President and Head of Sustainability and ESG at multinational uh, engineering manufacturing firm Danfoss. So, Francis, um, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Can I ask whereabouts you're calling from? We're kind of having to do this over teams uh, due to the hectic work schedules of us both. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I'm calling you from Copenhagen, Denmark. Lovely uh, stuff. I've been lucky enough to go out to Copenhagen a few times for sustainability-related uh, initiatives. It's a, a lovely city, probably a little bit better than um, our offices uh, and um, where we're located down near uh, Gatwick Airport. Um, but I don't really want to talk about uh, me and, and our offices, uh, Francis. I'd love to talk about you and Danfoss, of course. Um, but I think a great place to start for our listeners would be a little bit about your role. Um, what is your kind of day-to-day remit is and how that fits with Danfoss's um, approach to sustainability and within that circularity? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, well, for the listeners that don't know Danfoss, and uh, that's, you know, a product of being a behind the scenes company that's powering in many ways the green transition. As you said, we're a global engineering company and we provide components to almost every industrial application, including um, necessary parts, components and solutions, full solutions for the green transition, the electrification of heavy, heavy industry, you know, everything from marine to industrial production um, and, you know, excitingly P to X sector coupling, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. Um, but my role as VP, Danfoss uh, has three business segments, power solutions, drive and climate solutions. So power solutions, heavy industry, hydraulics, motors, things like this. Drive, uh, I myself had to really deep dive into what a drive does, but it essentially controls the speed of industrial production processes, saving a great amount of energy and you know carbon in the process and climate solutions, heating, cooling, compressors, uh, everything from um, you know commercial buildings to residential buildings. Danfoss, of course, especially in here in the Nordics and in Northern Europe, are best known for our thermostats, which actually today only uh, make up around less than one percent of our global turnover every year. Um, but in my role, it's about making sure that, you know, our three businesses that 
have a lot of synergies, um, but are also very different in their own way, um, work with ESG um, in the Danfoss way. Uh, that we have governance in place and that we are able to um, stay on top of these sustainability megatrends. And I wouldn't call circularity a megatrend per se. It's really a uh, it's really a mainstay in in working with sustainability and ESG topics. Um, but our role is to be the subject matter expert, to catalyze, to incubate and to make sure that all 40,000 people um in Danfoss are comfortable being advocates for and working with and integrating and executing uh, ESG and our ESG ambitions. Brilliant, Francis. Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm glad you mentioned the the, the G the in, in ESG governments. I think a lot of organizations think they can implement targets and strategies around the other two pillars and that it will just fall into place, but that's not, not the case. And you also <laughs> mentioned a lot of those uh, products. Um, and I know that Danfoss has a very ambitious target um, for your products and aspects of um, circularity. So uh, more than 80% of new developed products uh, sold will be covered by a circularity approach by 2030. It'd be great mm-hmm. to kind of dive into what that means and looks like in practice. Yeah. And, you know, to be transparent, which is the point of sustainability, we are just beginning on that journey, right? We launched our ESG ambitions around decarbonization, circularity, diversity, equity and inclusion um, almost two years ago. So we are starting out. But what we have done um, is define what we mean at Danfoss by circularity, of course, rooted in global best practices and standards. Um, but unlike carbon, as you know, with your day to day work, there's not a greenhouse gas protocol for circularity. So we've really had to work with our businesses and understand, you know, how do we define um, circularity? It's, of course, in line with, uh, as I said, uh, best practice, but we've structured it and it's probably not uh, reinventing the wheel, but rather tailoring it to our unique company um, around the principles of rethink, reuse reduce, recycle. You've heard that before. Um, And under that are nine strategies that drive the development of our new products. So for us, um, as a company that invests around 5% of our top line every year back into R&D and new product development, super important to start at product development and look at the whole uh, life cycle of the product all the way to end of life and everything in between. Um, so the nine strategies under rethink, reduce, reuse and recycle are looking again, product design, procurement. So looking at the materials, you know, what is the recycled content of materials? And as you know, and as listeners might know, um, every type of metal has a different carbon footprint. Uh, looking at uh, recycled materials, recycled plastics, uh, green steel, of course, is a hot topic at the moment or has been for some time. Um, so looking up uh, at product design and upstream of what we source into our products, then of course, manufacturing a big, big um, part of Danfoss uh, and of circularity is efficiency. So uh, that is everything from materials efficiency, product efficiency, minimizing the losses um, in the products, and importantly, energy efficiency. So electricity, heat, all of these types of energy uh, of course, 
again, Danfoss has solutions to increase efficiency, harnessed uh, waste heat, for instance. Well, I think we'll get to that later, but you might have seen that we published a white paper on the, the potential of simply harnessing waste that is uh, let out into into thin air um, to power or to uh, to reduce uh, consumption and carbon emissions in industrial processes. Then, um, you know, logistics, marketing and sales. The use phase is really big for Danfoss, and I think we'll get to that later as well. Um, 98% of our total carbon footprint is in use of sold products because we might have a Danfoss drive that runs on a production line for 20 years, a long product lifetime as well. Uh, and importantly, end of life, how is a product taken back or recycled, reused, um, or components are recycled or reused so that we do continue to build out a circular economy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned, obviously, and, and you're quite transparent as well, which is always good that you are starting out on this journey, but you've, you've already made some kind of big strides and, and kind of made some important partners on this approach. I think it's quite recently Danfoss joined uh, in with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's work, which is kind of the poster child for the circular economy in, in that sense. Um, mm. what, what was the kind of thought process behind, behind that decision and, and what are you hoping to kind of get out of being a member in a collaborative initiative like that? Uh, that's a really good point, Matt. And as you know, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is the preeminent organization driving thinking around circular thinking and collaboration around circular economy globally. Um, as mentioned, you know, we're starting out on this journey, but we want to signal our commitment um, by being a part of uh, this organization. And equally importantly, we want to learn from and collaborate with other companies and organizations um, in the world's leading circular economy network. Brilliant stuff. And yeah, um, we, we mentioned heat um, earlier, and I think Danfoss is a prime example of a company that can not only make their products and operations more circular, but also assist with um, the wider need to, to help embrace um, decarbonisation and circularity. Um, you've been a, uh, an advocate for a kind of a more circular approach to, to heat, as you mentioned, kind of capturing that way seat and that, that white paper you also referenced. Could we get a bit more uh, info on, on that and, and your, your views as to how, how Danfoss is uh, helping to improve efficiency in that area? Absolutely. Uh, just to highlight a few takeaways from the paper, um, according to new data, which you can read more about in the white paper, excess heat in the EU alone totals uh, just under 3000 terawatt hours per year. Um, to give you a sense of scale, that is equal to almost uh, the EU's total energy demand for heat and hot water in residential and service sector buildings. So a massive, massive amount of excess heat from data centers, from industrial production, uh, from the back of fridges. Um, for instance, Amanda was walking me through this uh, this morning and, you know, a really poignant example. If you put your hand at the back of the fridge, it is just a mechanism to transfer heat, right? Not to cool, but transfer heat to another location where it's not needed. And I think that's a really poignant example um, of how we can harness excess heat to take heat where it's not wanted to where it's absolutely needed instead of, you know, even relying on a partially decarbonized grid to uh, to remove heat in one place and then to separately um, produce heat um, in another place. No, that's great to see. It can always be the case that um, 
organizations kind of ignore the impact once the kind of products out the door that it's no longer their issue but we are seeing more and more companies including Danfoss quite clearly that are that are taking um that response and really trying to kind of help drive um more efficiencies across a whole value chain which is great to see and another question um that i'd love to ask you um with our audience in mind is is that because our audience is so so wide ranging basically some are very kind of far ahead on their journey around circularity have set up a lot of um issue uh implements and initiatives and processes to really kind of drive it but a lot are, are working certainly in small companies or well, just starting out or, or or trying to get to grips of how circularity can be kind of fed into their wider strategy and their business plan so as someone that's kind of forged ahead on their own circularity journey what advice would you have um, for those that are just starting out on this i would say um that you know that we can't do it alone. Um, and as part of our previous discussion on the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, uh, using it as a platform to collaborate with many different types of organizations, uh, academics, thought leaders, peers in the industry, um, suppliers upstream, and importantly, customers downstream. So circularity is something that we need to, and I, I can't use the term end-to-end, but we should um, address the full um, closed-loop life cycle, and that requires a lot of partners the final question um francis i'm a little bit conscious of, of time and we've got a lot to get through in this podcast episode but um collaboration has been uh, and still is and always will be such a key aspect of um sustainability and, and driving those uh kind of sector-wide or value chain-wide as you just mentioned improvements we've already spoken about the, the emf but um you've got a target in place that by 2025 danfoss is aimed to have circularity collaborations uh, with eight in ten of its top customers what advice would you give to our listeners to kind of actually deliver kind of collaborative um, initiatives or discussions that, that do drive real change? Um, you know, it's really starting at product design um, before the product is even put on the production line, manufactured, shipped out to uh, our customers and look at the entire product lifecycle together with our customers. So we do have, you know, components that are sold into solutions. But we also engineer specific solutions in many cases. So Danfoss uh, are uniquely positioned in that way to really be able to say, look at uh, the entire lifecycle. It's everything from packaging. We have a few really cool packaging pilots uh, with some of our customers. Right. Um, so when we start our product design, we're able to look at more parts of the, the life cycle. The second um advice if i can give that you know being early on um in this journey is engage senior leaders i don't know if i'm at liberty to to name leaders but it circularity and our uh collaboration pilots have been discussed uh, between our c-suite executives as you say sustainability is mainstream and for good reason it's really on the leadership agenda so really engaging with senior leaders uh helps to scale this helps to scale these pilots, needless to say. Um, I can give some examples if that would be helpful. Uh, yeah, we'd love, love a quick example uh, to, to round this off. It'd be great. Yeah. Uh, so in addition to looking at how we can be more efficient at packaging, switching out materials uh, for packaging, uh, we, with a customer, have looked specifically at recyclability um, and take back and refurbishment of some of our components uh, to close the loop, as as we've been saying for many years now. That's great, Francis. Uh, 
and I'm sure our audience are going to get a lot to take away from that. And it's quite fitting that we started this conversation talking about governance and finished it talking about engaging senior leaders. So it's been a pleasure speaking to you for this podcast episode. Likewise. Thanks so much, Matt. Great stuff. Okay, well, that is the three interviews. Um, I think we've given ourselves a good grounding on all things circular economy. So much so that I think uh, it's about time uh, we close out with a, a themed quiz. Regular listeners of the show will know that me and Matt have been going at it like Rock in Apollo over the last few months. It's fair to say that Matt, you've been on, up on the scorecards. Uh, so I think it's about time we introduce some fresh blood into our quizzes now because Player 3 has entered the game. Jade, you're a, a fellow vegan, a cyclist, climate activist. There's no end to your sustainability commitment. So I'm sure this will be a walk in the park, right? Nice. <laughs> that is, yeah, setting you up for an almighty fall out. <laughs> yeah, thanks for adding cycling <laughs> after one lesson. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, Quizmaster Sarah, uh, tell us how this one's going to work. Yes, so with three people, we'll have additional time, and also it's we found from previous editions that the buzzer doesn't always work, especially where you don't have an actual buzzer and it's just you you guys slapping the table. I, um, I did say buzz one time, and yes. it kind of didn't work. So I'm going to stick with a five-question quiz, but instead of making you buzz in for each answer, I'd like each of you to write down an answer, and then we can check our scores at the end. Okay. Um, so this is our circular economy, big fat sustainability quiz. I'll ask you five questions. Take a note of your answers on pen and paper or phone. God, this is all so serious. I was expecting like a theme tune, or but no, we're getting straight into it. Okay. I was expecting like the lights to dim, like who wants to be a millionaire? Yeah. <laughs> I would love to be able to do that, and I'd love for Circles by Megan Lee Stallion to be appropriate to play on this uh, <laughs> podcast, but yes. neither of this. Um, so we'll go straight into our circular economy big fat quiz. So um, question number one, according to the Circle Economy report this year, what percentage of the virgin materials humanity uses each year are kept in the circular economy? So it will just be closest to mm-hmm. the answer. Has everyone got an answer? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. I'm going to try and move on fairly swiftly. Um, second question. In what year was the first Earth overshoot day? So the year in which humans use more natural resources than could be replenished within a year. Question three. Earth overshoot day has been in the summer for the past few years. But if we all lived like we do here in the UK, when would it be this year? A specific date or month. I'm going to go for month and a bonus point for day. Okay. I should have thought of this one. Um, So I've got two questions left, hopefully (laughs) easier to answer. Fourth one is, which sector in the UK produces the most waste? See, Jade, I'm looking at my notepad there. Yeah, I wasn't (laughs) at all. Which sector in the UK produces the most waste? Yes. Our question five is all about sustainable fashion. Which European country is the worst on the continent for per-person fashion waste? Okay. Answers in. Got them. Great. Locked them in. Roll through those answers, Sarah. Right, I'll roll through the answers. So the first question was, what percentage of the virgin materials that humanity uses each year are kept in the circular economy? Um, Sadly, the proportion is only 7.2%. Seven. Mm, Quick typing there from that. What what did you guys put? I put three. (coughs) Jesus Christ, guys, I put 21. Oh, the optimist (coughs) and the pessimist. Seven. Um, right. So wow. that point goes to Mr. Mace. It seems that introducing a third person isn't going in your favour yet, Luke. Mm. Um, second question was, what was the first year that we had an Earth overshoot day? I was going to say celebrated, but it's not really <laughs> something to celebrate. Um, and the answer is 1970. Ooh, uh, I had 72. 80. 92. <laughs> okay. Right, so that's a point to, to Luke on that one. Um, next one is, if we all live like we do in the UK... When would our Earth Overshoot Day for 2023 be? May 19th. It's May 19th. Oh. Yes. 
Really? Oh, what did I think it was January? Maybe it was London. It was January or something. I know, that's air pollution, isn't it, London? They get through their annual air yeah, pollution in January. Is, yeah. yeah, that's very depressing. Sorry, Jade, I can see her face and we're definitely freeing her. God, this her. isn't a visual medium. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving swiftly on to question number four, which sector in the UK produces the most waste? Any guesses? Construction. Construction. Yeah. What did you say, Constru- I said construction. Great. Okay. <laughs> Points around. So everyone there, I'm just going to put in. Yeah, everyone. Everyone got construction on that one, oh, didn't they? Matt, help me out of it. I've clearly <laughs> come last. E for everyone. Um, construction and demolition accounted for 62% of the UK solid waste in 2018, which is significant. Mm. Um, the global rate is about 40%. Um, and then the last one is which European country is the worst in terms of fashion waste per person per year? Spain. Yes, oh, I'll put the UK. I'll put UK. Yeah. So the UK is often said to be the worst in terms of just the sheer amount of waste, but we are more densely populated than a lot of other European countries. Mm. Um, so the worst offender, according to Labfresh, is actually Belgium, 14.8 kilograms of textile waste oh. per person mm. per year. Um, so I'll put an N for no one next to that one, mm. um, which means that Matt is the winner with three points. Yeah, plan of mine hasn't worked yet, Matt's still. (laughs) (laughs) We can get more people in next week, get the whole company in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well done to Matt. Uh, That really is a wrap for this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. Although actually before we jump off, um, Jade, you've got your work cut out with ED events over the next few weeks. Give us a rundown of what's coming up. Yep, so the circular economy has been a big theme for this week's episode and with that in mind, we are hosting our own circular economy action sessions Mm -hmm. on the 25th of May. And to register for this free event, go to ed.net forward slash circular hyphen economy hyphen week. Great stuff. Looking forward to that circular economy week. Thank you to all of the special guests featured in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. Uh, A special shout out there to Jade for a successful podcast debut. To Sarah for her insightful interviews and exceptional quiz hosting. Uh, Matt was here as well. Uh, And a special thanks as ever to our podcast partner, Lloyds Bank. So it's a goodbye from Jade. Bye. Goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sarah. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. So do we have to re-record any bit?